Listen to the podcast version of this blog post here. Rule 4. Raise your standards. It is your actions in present that will determine your future. That is why it is important that you begin to act in a way that you think your future self would be likely to behave. Just by asking one simple question you could immediately boost your performance. This is something which I gleaned from reading a Tim Robbins self-help book many moons ago. However, basic principle can be applied readily to the workplace. Everybody wants a promotion. Everybody wants more money. Everybody wants more power. However, you cannot magic into existence a promotion opportunity and you cannot magic into existence more money. So, what can you do right here and now for free? Something that you can do anytime and doesn't require any resources? The answer is to raise your standards. So, what does this actually mean? Imagine you finish a project, finish a lesson plan, or submit a report. Are you happy with it? That's the only question you need to ask. Is everything that you do done to the best standards you can possibly do, given the inevitable restriction on time and circumstance we all have? The key caveat here is to consider the restrictions we all have. Of course, it is impossible that you can decide an endless amount of time and resources to every single task. However, maximizing the time you do spend on things may help boost your performance. The reason this is so important is because by turbocharging your productivity in the here and now you are going to put yourself in the minds of people who decision makers ahead of further opportunities. When a new availability becomes available, those who are interested will apply and try to exploit their skills and experiences. The trick is to have positioned yourself in such a way through your daily examples of work that you are at the top of this list before any interviews have even taken place stop. When I set out on my own journey to get my career back on track, I was a part-time teacher. I knew that is not what I wanted to do nor the position I wanted to have long-term. What I had identified I wanted in my mid-term plan was the position of a teacher coordinator. To me, that seemed a realistic goal to reach within a two-year time frame. However, it would require not one but two steps up the ladder. To even be in the position of being able to apply for this position I needed to have a teaching diploma. When I laid down my plan, I didn't have the qualification and I quickly identified it as a potential barrier to my career progression. With this in mind, I placed gaining the certification at the top of my hit list. I knew that without this, I would be stuck at a certain level within the organization indefinitely. I was getting wind from a colleague of mine that there might be an upcoming vacancy for full-time teacher position, leading to coordinator role within a year, on a new project that would be coming up in subsequent months. At this stage, my short-term plan was already being enacted and I had signed up for the next diploma course. I did not have any time frame for applying for any new vacancies, but I knew that it was important to position myself in anticipation of such an opportunity occurring. If I simply waited until an opportunity presented itself, then I knew I would regret not being in an optimal position to exploit it. I decided therefore that now was a good time to try and position myself. If the vacancy arose and I was prepared, then great. I could give it my best effort. If it didn't work out, I would still then be in a better place than I was at present to take advantage of any further opportunities that would arise. I couldn't see any downside. Investing time and effort into developing my skill set would benefit me both in the here and now and in the future. I redoubled my efforts on the project I was working on, and I made a concerted effort to get additional feedback from colleagues and to consult with the senior teacher. I applied my current learning on the diploma and put it into practice as I attempted an overhaul of the existing curriculum. I tried to go above and beyond what was merely required for the job. Although I worked on the project with a co-teacher, I tried to position myself as leading force in the curriculum development that was taking place on the project. The additional effort I put into revamping the curriculum and materials was soon noticed by my own line manager and senior teacher. 
Improved results in the end-of-course student feedback survey added additional clout to my credentials widening the organization, especially among more senior colleagues who would not be so involved with day-to-day teaching activities but would take notice of improved feedback and contract renewals from the universities we worked. During this period, more information began to filter through about the aforementioned upcoming vacancy which was to include collaborating with the university on a new curriculum. Since I had just, almost, single-handedly tried to rewrite the curriculum on my existing project, I was in a good position to talk about my experiences and be able to give some clear examples of what I had backed by positive feedback from students and stakeholders. In the end, I was able to supersede more experienced colleagues in attaining the position. Although it is impossible to know the discussion and decision-making process engaged in by the interviewers, I'm certain that had I not invested the time and effort into raising my own standards and the quality of what I had been producing up to that point, it is doubtful that I would have been selected for the position. Once I got the teaching position, I was now on a fairly linear path to the coordinator position I had identified as my target. Having taken the risk of relocating to take up the new position, when the more senior role arose, I had the advantage of already bang in situ, which allowed me to leapfrog other, more experienced teachers within the organization. Of the two people working full-time on that project, only I had the requisite diploma needed for the coordinator role. It would have been difficult to have selected another applicant as a coordinator and it would have meant bringing in someone from the outside who is less familiar with the project. In essence, it was more or less a one-horse race. I remember subsequently visiting head office and one of my colleagues made it comment about my new position, along the lines of it's almost as if there was only one applicant and that I had gotten the job by default. I could not help but smile to myself because this same person had been sitting in the office 12 months previously complaining about the lack of a pay raise and opportunities. In the that intervening time, I had gained two promotions and increased my salary by almost 50%. I could see now how my earlier proaction and planning ahead was paying dividends. This is also great chance for you to expand your existing skill set, as expanded further in Chapter 6, and commit to development. A commitment to raising standards can be used across the board and across the whole gamut of interactions that you have in the workplace. A very simple example is in the sending of emails. It is very easy, particularly when you under a daily deluge of emails to send them out as quickly as possible, oblivious to any grammatical or spelling mistakes. How after all, how much is a misspelt word or poorly punctuated sentence going to distort years worth of work put into a syllabus? However, it is important to realize that every time you make contact with somebody it is an opportunity for you to project a certain kind of image. You have a choice as to how you want that image projected. In the world of international relations, diplomacy is the tool established for deferring entities to forge relationships with one another. The frequency of these interactions carries great sway over how carefully each individual interaction should be planned and managed. For example, if you work in a small, close-knit group of colleagues with a flurry of emails being sent every day in addition to -to face-to-face verbal exchanges, it is more likely that errors will occur purely down to the statistical likelihood arising from increased interactions. Also, in this situation any lack of clarity or potential confusion conveyed in written correspondence can easily be addressed. Indeed, when communicating with colleagues with whom you have a friendly relationship, excessive amounts of slang and humor may well be on display with no tangible downside. However, think now of a situation between two countries that do not have any established diplomatic ties or relationships. Communication between the two countries is rarely direct and often obfuscated or sent through intermediaries. When major events happen, for example, the death of a prominent leader or marriage of members of royal family, that may be an opportunity for representatives of these different nations to attend at a third-party location. This may provide opportunities for non-formal meetings between two groups of people who normally would not have a chance to interact with one another. This is commonly referred to as special diplomacy. 
What makes it special is the rarity of such meetings taking place. The fewer interactions that are held between two entities, the greater prominence and importance that each of these interactions takes on. To use the previous example of emails, imagine that you are emailing somebody in HR who you may contact only by email two or three times a year when you experience issues or have questions regarding expenses or pay claims. You have a chance to leave a good impression on that person simply by being polite and making sure that your messages are well written and free of any silly errors. This is particularly noticeable when working with foreign staff members. I've always been struck by the fact that people would try to communicate with me in their seconds language. The least I can do is to make sure that I send them a reply in the time frame they request and with correct spelling. If you constantly receive emails from people that are poorly written and littered with spelling and punctuation errors, what kind of impression do you think that creates? Is it of somebody who is conscientious and checks their work, or is it somebody who is easily distracted and does not take the time to check what they are doing? For the sake of spending an extra 20 seconds to double-check the content of an email sent to a colleague you could help propagate a positive reputation for yourself amongst other staff. A persistent pet peeve of mine has always been when people set themselves deadlines and fail to meet them. When I think of previous line managers I have worked with, I have very clear examples in my head as to when they've told me that they will do something and then whether or not they did it. In fact, I can think of managers in the past who I haven't personally liked but who I have respected for doing what they said they would do, when they said they were going to do it. It is absolutely crucial that you stick to deadlines. Remember that that whenever you have a deadline to meet, it is usually in place because whatever it is that you are submitting or signing off on is likely to be processed then again by somebody else. Therefore, if you are late, or do not clearly communicate deadlines to which you're working, this has a very real impact on other people who are depending on you to do your job so that they can do theirs. You should always stick to deadlines as a matter of course to avoid becoming the bottleneck in any workflow environment. Measured criticism. It's important to focus your main energies of standard raising inward and focus on self-improvement. It is very easy to criticize others for they have done, or not done, but remember that if you are going to criticize other people for the standards at which they have performed their jobs, you need to be damn sure a similar accusation cannot be leveled at you. You need to make sure that your own house is in order. The way in which you give and receive criticism is also going to play an important role in how you are received by others. I remember an old friend of mine at university telling me that a real man would never admit to making a mistake. This seemed a little foolhardy to me at the time. Everybody makes mistakes. To not every admitted to others when it is in plain sight could well be detrimental as you run the risk of seeming out of touch with reality. However, if you do make a mistake, it is incumbent upon you to own up to it and accept it. The trick is to do it without going overboard. You don't want to be running yourself, your achievements and talent down. Instead, you need to visualize making mistakes as part of the process of learning, acknowledge the mistake and commit to not repeating it again. Giving criticism can be particularly tricky as nobody likes to receive criticism on what they have done. In some cases, it can feel like you're being attacked, and it is easy to see that if somebody has invested huge amounts of that time into something only to be subsequently criticized by other, this can be an extremely unpleasant experience. One line of argument I have often heard that if you are going to criticize something you need to be able to provide a solution. Personally, I've never fully bought into this idea. I do not think it is necessary or realistic to provide a comprehensive solution with every critique. However, if you are going to criticize others on what they have done it is important that you can at least identify what the key problems are. Imagine that you are a teacher and are concerned about the quality of teaching being offered to students. You should be able to articulate what you think the problems. However, that is not to say that you need to be able to present a definitive fix for this problem at the same instant. Such an approach could even restrictive and detrimental to the pursuit of change. 
experimentation and collaboration are important facets of raising your standards. When considering the points above with regards to raising your standards, you can ensure that a positive impression of you is propagated amongst the people you work with. As mentioned in the previous chapter, being the outcast is in many ways an extremely good thing. Being known for always meeting deadlines, completing projects to high standards and being always seeking ways to improve will help foster self-perpetuating feedback, performance loop which will keep you motivated to continue seeking improvement. Dash. What can you do now? What can you do now to take an immediate step towards raising your standards? Take a pen and paper and write down the last time you felt really satisfied with something you did related to your work. It might be a lesson you taught, a report you submitted or a particularly successful meeting with a client. Make a quick note as to why you have such a positive feeling toward this event. For example, as a teacher there's nothing better than finishing a class and walking out the lesson with the feeling that everything went exactly how you hoped it would. Students seem to understand the content, enjoyed their interactions with both the teacher and each other and clearly demonstrated an improvement in being able to discern and use the target language. What would you attribute this to? Is it because you had planned the lesson well? Is it because the topic was something that really motivated and interested the students? Is it because the students felt confident in the classroom environment to experiment with the new language? Now, think about a situation at work that you are unhappy with and make notes as to what specifically you are unhappy about. As a teacher, on occasion you will finish your class and have the feeling it did not work how you had hoped. Students could seemingly not understand the lesson contents. Nor did they seem to enjoy it. Is it because you didn't spend sufficient time planning? Is it because the students were in a particularly boisterous mood, and if so, what was the reason for that? What is it specifically that resulted in that lesson, that event, that situation which resulted in it being less than optimal? Now, with your two lists completed side by side, look for specific instance of where you action or inaction impacted on the successful completion of the task. What areas did you excel at, and what areas did you fall short? This should give you an indication of where you can focus your initial efforts on self-improvement. Finally, one more insightful task that can be quite enlightening is to look at the last five emails that you have sent to work colleagues. Read through them carefully. Can you find any spelling mistakes? If so, how many? What do you think the impact, if any, of any mistakes that you have made will be on the recipient?